I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to, dissever himself from the world, to vanish Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Yeah, I would love to do some off the record. What the fucking? What the yeah. fuck? <laughs> hey, uh, so now we're going to begin our uh, off the record. What the fucking portion? <laughs> God. I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And, and I'm, I'm a writer, writer but. Welcome to I'm a Writer But. On the show today, we have Aaron Summers. Aaron Summers is the author of the novel Stay Up with Hugo Best. Her writing has also appeared in the New York Times, New Yorker, the Paris Review, American Short Fiction, Tin House, and elsewhere. She is a reporter for the publishing industry newsletter Publishers Lunch and lives in Beacon, New York with her husband and daughter. Aaron, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me, guys. Thank, thank you, you. Thank you for being on. Of course. So did you have anything uh, you wanted to read for us today? Yeah, I thought, um, so I published a story um, now, two, last week, two weeks ago. I don't know, the, the weeks all run together. Nobody, um, there's no way of knowing. Yeah, no, what is time? But um, <laughs> uh, people, you know, these things usually come and go on the internet, mm -hmm. as I'm sure you guys both know. Tragically, you publish a short story and sometimes it just like, disappear a couple of your friends will be like loved your story and then it sort of just disappears into the ether forever are you um, gonna read the joyland story i am oh, oh yeah. i'm so excited okay but sorry i interrupted time, you something crazy happened which was a lot of people unexpectedly read it and it kind of uh, made the rounds and a lot of people connected to it which awesome. was awesome like astonishing because um 
just like that doesn't happen a lot with short fiction. Um, it's really hard to reach anybody. So I was like delighted and touched by that reception. So I thought I would um, just read the opening section from that story. Yay. Okay, so the story is called 10 Year Affair. Cora met Sam and a baby group in their small town. They sat on blue plastic mats in the back of an overpriced children's clothing store. Their infants squirmed in front of them on sheepskins. The room smelled like breast milk and baby heads and cruciferous vegetables boiled down to weakened mealy fibers that one mom had brought in a Tupperware and was trying to feed her 10-month-old. That baby doesn't want broccoli, said Sam. He had a toothpick stuck to his lower lip. His mouth was sexy. The toothpick was not. He offered one to Cora. She took it so she could touch his hand. It tasted like cinnamon. Of all available affectations, this one was openly oral, wholly about his lips and tongue, either keeping them busy or drawing attention to them. So which one was it, she asked him. Neither, he said. Now he was using his to prod his incisors at the gum line. It's just something to do. To be a, to be a man and kill time chewing a wet stick, she said. Across the room, the weeping child ingested a bite from the Tupperware and her mother called out triumphantly, see? It was the two of them against broccoli, mom. That much was clear. They exchanged numbers to seal the alliance. The purpose was to text when they'd be at baby group, but soon they started meeting up elsewhere. They passed the long afternoons of parental leave that way. Her husband knew and did not seem to mind. They'd get a coffee or sometimes a beer at one of the places on Main Street. And after they'd push their babies uphill toward the dark green mountain that stood at the top of the town. Maybe because they had young children and were used to talking plainly about birth and shit and blood and bodies and the potential of death, their talk was frank. They were both married, both with the second kid, but spoke candidly about their desire for each other. They could not sleep together because their motivations were not perfectly aligned. They overlapped, but were not concentric. This was insurmountable. Cora wanted to fuck Sam. It was physical only, but had grown strong. She had no control over it. She became a slavering animal in his presence. She told him this one afternoon, a few months into their acquaintance on a stretch of sharp incline. Her quads burned and she panted slightly. He laughed. I shouldn't have told you, said Cora. No, I'm glad you did. It's just the way you put it. Sam wanted her too, he explained, but there was nothing animal about it. It had more to do with liking Cora as a person. He would not cop to love. Cora found it hard to believe it was merely about liking her. Liking was a mild way to feel. Did he want to fuck everything he liked? His computer, grapefruit seltzer, a scattering of ducks on a pond where he wasn't expecting to see ducks? He said, you're attracted to me, I get that, but you don't seem to like me much. What's with the emphasis on liking all the time, she said. Don't you have feelings, he said. She did have feelings. The feelings were that she wanted to get fucked onto the astral plane and not think about her life for a second. But this clearly wasn't the right thing to say, so she reached into the feelings bag and yanked out, I'm crazy about you. Sure, why not? It was bland, liking adjacent. It was not necessarily a declaration of love. He seemed to accept it. Okay, he said, but can't we be friends? It's sad to me, the idea of not knowing you. If I wanted a new friend, she said, I'd find a woman, no offense. So if we can't be friends, what are we supposed to do? He said, have a 10 year affair. They were silent. Their generation did not take off its clothes, did not put its keys in a bowl by the front door. Sex between men and women had become taboo in their generation where everyone was striving, not incorrectly, to be an equal. Even the word affair had the ring of obsolescence like a cigarette or an ad man or chaise lounge. I'm kidding, he said at last, but the affair was there now. It was between them. Somewhere in the multiverse, their alternates checked into a hotel room where the afternoon light came in at a slant and hit a champagne bucket just so. It was a cliche, but wild and enjoyable because it was happening to them. 
this mythic thing they'd heard about, this thing in quotes, an affair. I'll stop there. I love that story so much. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. And we always mute ourselves, but the part about the ducks is so it's fucking a, funny. That's the part that killed me too. <laughs> Scattering of ducks. Thanks. <laughs> uh, how does it feel to read your work? Are you? A, I, a, a I'm rusty. Like yeah. Well, like I, there haven't there haven't been readings. Yeah. So um, when this thing began, my paperback, um, the paperback of Stay Up was coming out and I did a few Zoom events then um, where I read from the book um, and sort of those like very early Wild West days of like hanging oh out gosh, on Zoom. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't really like read since then um, because there's no, you know, there's no venue, so. I know. I feel like I, I start to get like enthusiasm up, you know, for an idea of like having a reading, but then like the actual doing it on a Zoom or like on an Insta story feels so bleak. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, it, so, you know, the day comes, I, I'm always like that. I love the idea of it. And then the mm -hmm. day comes and it's like, just like 7 p.m. And I'm like, oh, I committed to just like watching a reading on a computer okay. I actually feel like doing that now it doesn't have the same excitement as like the in-person reading oh, no I know I miss yeah. them I miss them a lot more than I thought I would same what are you working on right now I am very close to finishing a novel Oh, wow. Yay. That is sort of um, an expansion of this story um, that I just read from. Oh, awesome. Um, it deals with the same characters and is, um, you know, but goes much further um, and is, yeah, it's really close to being done. It's taking me much longer um, because I've got de gotten derailed somewhat by the pandemic. I feel like I'm, I'm not alone there. Right. Um, I, I, you know, it just like slowed me way down now that I have like unpredictable childcare. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm trying to not beat myself up about that, but I'm hoping to have a draft done in the next few months. Awesome. How, uh, what is a, what's a normal work day look like for you as far as like balancing job and getting writing done? What is, what is a typical day for you? So I'm really lucky that um, I have a full-time job, but it's really compatible um, with my writing in that I start super early. So I'm at my desk at 7.30. And then um, I, what I do is I work for the newsletter Publishers Lunch and we send, um, the concept is that it sends before lunchtime, before like everyone used to go out to lunch, editors and agents. And so it would give everybody like the news that they needed before they like went to go like have their industry gossip and industry talk at lunchtime. Right. So it goes out around 11. So I work pretty intensely on that between 7.30 a.m. and 11. And then um, after that, the work is sort of intermittent. And sometimes if it's slow, um, it'll be, I'll, I'll kind of be done for the day around like 11, 11.30. Oh, that's awesome. So then I have those hours between the end of that and picking up my daughter um, at whatever you know, patchwork childcare situation we're in. It used to be consistently that she went to school, but now it's kind of all over the place. But um, so I have those hours, that three hour or used to be four hour chunk of the day to write. 
Um, and sometimes I have to do like work stuff in there, like, you know, take a break and do some task, but some days I like get that big chunk of time. Um, and it's pretty consistent. Like I'll get that a few times a week. So that's, I feel like that's a real gift that not a lot of working writers have like with a full-time day job. Is it hard to work in publishing in the way you do and then immediately go into writing fiction? I mean, is it, or is it such a part of your life at this point where you're divorced from the, like, like it's no big deal. Like, I mean, it, it's sometimes like, it's just my whole life. Like books are my whole life and I never get a break from it. Mm -hmm. And the only time, like, I, I like it. Like I love books and the world of books and the world of publishing and the ins and outs of it and the writing itself. Like I really love it, but it, um, when my, around the time my book came out and that year I, I had to cover all the same things I cover, which is awards includes awards and fellowships and like all these things other writers um were getting and i have to follow them closely whereas other people can just mute you know like just mm. mute the words whatever whiting on twitter and never have to know or think about it um but i have to report on it so uh, in 2019, when my book came out, um, I did descend into madness. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh God! Um, but since, like, I think so, I'm just like braced for that to happen every time I publish a book. For like, there's going to be like eight months of my life where I'm just like, I, I can't be reasoned with, and I should really be like in a padded room. But um, <laughs> other than that, I mostly like it. <laughs> <laughs> I think like, I think that's like one thing that, that, um, debut authors might not understand at first is like, like that, the, what putting a book out does to you, right? Like what it, like what it feels like. Um, and I think, you know, like your situation at publisher's lunch is a totally like unique situation, but like, can you talk about like what it felt like before the book came out and then what it felt like after the book came out, you know, like. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to. So I got lucky in a lot of ways, um, which is that I got like, I got a great agent pretty easily. And I got um, a great deal at a great imprint. And all of that was going well. And so I was lucky in a lot of ways. Days, and it still felt really, really bad. Like mm -hmm. all of it felt bad. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys share that experience. Mm -hmm. Yep. There's something like, you feel like exposed yeah. or I did, mm -hmm. you feel exposed and it like so sensitive to everything and so anxious and so disappointable. And it doesn't matter how many good reviews you get. Um, it's not enough because there are like, you know, say 30 great things that can happen to you right. like, possible in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you get maybe five mm -hmm. <laughs> of those 30, you get like reviewed in the times or you get like, you know, featured in, you know, your book gets featured in a, a magazine you like or something. And so like maybe five of those good things will happen to you. And then the other 25 drive you crazy. And <laughs> <off>. <laughs> Even though like five awesome things happened. Mm-hmm the 25 still like crush you. Mm -hmm. And of all people, like 
you know the 30 more than other people like and you probably have a better sense of like okay there's 30 but like it's really 27 because those three are impossible because of x y and z circumstance i mean i i can't even that's why i was so interested to hear what your experience would be with that because just your awareness of the overall just publishing landscape i feel like i don't think i'd be tough enough to also exist within it yeah yeah i know i know too much Mm -hmm. right right Mm -hmm. But I still think like most people, I mean, my thoughts on everything are like, if this is something that I've felt, most people probably feel this way too. And most of the other debut authors I've spoken to are like, this is like, why is this so terrible? Like, why do I feel dehumanized? Like I feel stripped of my basic humanity. Yes. And it should be, it should be like, it's, it's your dream, right? Like it's your dream to have a book out in the world, but it turns out like the the best you feel or the best I felt about it was the day it sold, right? Like, okay, it's going to be a book. And then everything after that, I was like, oh my God, I suck so bad. (laughs) Another (laughs) good day. I would say for me, the best day is when the advance lands. Mm. That's a tangible thing you can enjoy Mm -hmm. whenever. So like my advance was, um, divvied up over three years and, um, so once a year I would get like a, a chunk of it. And so my way of like, like the one fun thing about my book deal is that I would, I would insist like one night where we just, my husband and I went out and just like went for it, like yes. had an expensive <laughs> dinner, got like whatever drinks we wanted. I mean, now this, in, in the explanation, this sounds very modest, but this is like, but like we would go large for ourselves you know, like stay in a hotel, whatever it was. Um, So that was like, that was probably the most rewarding thing was like finding a way to actually like eke some enjoyment out of it. That is so crucial because I think that gets lost, right? Like I I think like if you don't make a point to celebrate these successes or like, like mark this moment, it can just go away, right? Like, and then you're like, well, you know, I guess I could have like a margarita to celebrate, you know, I I think I'm like talking about myself here. But I just think it's great that you made a point to be like, no, we're fucking celebrating this. This is big. Yeah. And then you wait. I don't know. It's like weird things, weird psychological things go on. Like the day I got my book deal, my mom um, and sister sent me like a magnum of expensive champagne. And I was like superstitious about popping it. Oh my gosh. I still have two unopened bottles. Right. And I was like, I'm not going to, I'm going to wait until the next good thing happens to me. Mm -hmm. And then just like, nothing was ever, nothing ever seemed to fit that after that. Oh my God. Like (laughs) it was like everything else hurt from there on out about, (laughs) even though there's no real, I mean, like from an outsider perspective, I'm sure I was being crazy by being like so massively disappointed, but like nothing ever felt big enough again. So I held onto it for a year. And then we finally ended up opening it just like on a random day in the early pandemic, because we were like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. Life sucks. (laughs) (laughs) My husband doesn't like, doesn't like to drink because his joke is always like, our children can sense our weakness. <laughs> if we have, <laughs> if we so have a intense. drink, <laughs> if 
and he's right they can so there's never a moment where we're like yeah let's have you know like let's have a drink you know like like I might like propose that and he'll be like yeah that sounds good and then by the time it's time to have the drink we're like fuck this (laughs) (laughs) but the point is celebrate your successes writers open the bottles (laughs) open the bottle the day of like I shouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't wait next time around yes absolutely and your Joyland story blowing up, I hope you, you know, opened some kind of metaphorical bottle. Well, I, I well, yeah, I'm pregnant. So yes, I, I didn't want to know if I could say that, yeah. but yes. No. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, there's not much, it's really hard to celebrate right now. Like, what do you do? Yeah. Um, but I did, it was, I was just internally gratified and it was nice to feel happy for a day instead of, um, so worried and it's just I mean I'm always amazed when anyone connects to the work like that feels miraculous to me like that's the best Mm -hmm. I know just like one person right like it's like I just wanted one person to listen and to hear what I was saying and then and then you get that right like and it's like yeah Erin I want to ask you uh with with stay up with Hugo best I was I was reading a little bit of uh some interviews you did when when uh first came out and just the fact that you hadn't worked in late night and you know I was so interested um in hearing how you arrived at you know the actual contents of that novel and setting it where you did um without that background just because I think it's important for people to hear especially with a a first novel it doesn't necessarily have to be like some deeply autobiographical like you know, give everything over your life story. Like you can kind of just choose something and you'll bring yourself to it regardless. I don't know. I, I, I think that can be, it can be so daunting about like, God, what does this first novel have to be? And I don't think it necessarily always has to be some kind of huge struggle to determine what that's, what that is. Yeah. So um, I wanted to like the big, the story I wanted to tell was about, how difficult it is to be a young woman um, trying to, and trying to like pursue something artistically or creatively. Um, And how like I had 15 years, I'm not so young anymore, but I had like 15 years of just like struggling as an artist and feeling um, like I was spinning my wheels and like there were, structures in place that were like keeping me from succeeding um and that things were just like very hard um and I thought again I thought that like if I feel this way uh there are other people that feel this way certainly Mm -hmm. um and I didn't think that it was such an interesting story to tell in the world of fiction writing because we've just seen that a lot you know like that's, and I think like, I really enjoy novels about writers. I love them. I love canvas novels and novels about, um, you know, professors and things, but I didn't know that I could do that in a new way that, right. that would like, you know, rise above the things that already exist. Like there are wonderful examples of those. So I wanted to set it in a different world. Um, and I was sort of fascinated um, by late night just because it perplexes me. 
uh, as to like, it seem, it's so old fashioned. Um, and it's still like, you know, mostly, especially network late at night is still like so traditional and it's these like dudes in suits mm-hmm. and all the conventions of it are like still like carry over from the Johnny Carson days. And I thought like, this is a really weird thing. Yeah. And when I started the book, it was uh, the Obama era. And I was really hopeful that that was on its way out. Like surely this thing, like surely white men are on their way out now. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone will agree with me that like, this is like, that this late night thing is like the absolute last gasp of white men uh, reigning (laughs) supreme over culture. Oh my gosh. How naive, but um, yeah, no. So I thought that that made it, uh, that made it interesting. And that, um, that made the world particularly you know, a particularly good fit for the story I wanted to tell. So that's, that's why, that's why late night. I also thought I wanted to try writing the jokes right? Um, and see if I could do it. Not that, you know, I'm so great at writing those jokes, but because I find those jokes like mediocre to bad. <laughs> and I um, thought that that was an interesting project. Like, let me set out to write mediocre humor. Mm-hmm. And recognizable too, like it's very, you know, like immediately that format that is very recognizable, right? Like it's like, oh yes, I know exactly what I'm getting here. It's a safe little joke, you know, like. Totally. They have like even a certain rhythm Mm -hmm. Um, and they're just, again, they're just like fascinating and old fashioned. And I was like, I want to, you know, that's sort of an interesting formal challenge to like write a bunch of late night jokes um, as a fiction writer. Uh, yeah, so so that excited me about it too. I um, was very angry at you because the whole time I was like, okay, so this is based on Leno, this is based on Letterman, this is based on you know whoever, and I was like, is she trying to get me to be attracted to Jay Leno? Because no, <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, I think I am attracted to Jay Leno by the end of the book. <laughs> yeah, I was. It is sort of mostly like inspired by Jay Leno because you know when I was thinking about it. Jan, Jay Leno is the most mystifying to me. Like, I don't get it at all. Mm-hmm. The yes. denim. Oh, my God. And the like, he's so unfunny. And he's so, I just don't see the charm. Like, I, I kind of get it with Letterman. Like, Letterman, yeah. yes. I connect with more. And these, like, I can see what's likable about these, like, present day guys like Jimmy Fallon. And, like, I get it. Not right. so much Kimmel. I kind of loathe Kimmel. But some of the other ones, I'm like, okay, Seth Meyers, like that's. I love Seth Meyers. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But Jay Leno, I'm like, I, I just, I absolutely like that is opaque to me. So again, like, I thought that that would be like, like I just like imagine myself trying to interact with Jay Leno and what a <laughs> what a nightmare <laughs> and how it would be get like gaff after gaff on my part and I wouldn't be able to <laughs> get in there at all and our every interaction would be tense and I thought that that is sort of you know, that's kind of great for, as a dynamic. Uh, so that's and also to try to like, like find any sort of inner life in there. Right. Like does Jayla have an inner life? Let's write about that. Right. Like, (laughs) right. And also sort of like bring empathy to it and generosity, like make, make him kind of likable, you know, make the audience kind of like him and like root for him at moments. Um, yeah like you know an exercise in empathy like go there find it uh 
so yeah so that was fun some of the details you know that were inspired by leno or some of them from letterman it's funny because when you read them in your book you know it ascribed to hugo best in in certain ways it really makes them stand out and are much more it's like way more clear it was way more clear to me reading your book like oh my god it's insane that this guy has like 300 cars or whatever the hell it is and it's like or you know there's the or just like the nature of the of the cheating on you know on his wife with the intern all, all these different things it's like when you read them divorced from the real person and they're divorced from the name that we're all familiar with and see them telling these formulaic jokes it really does make you realize like oh my god these people these are insane people yes yeah their lives are weird and it's so um, weird it's not just uh, these specific personalities it's like at big entertainment personalities right um their lives are so weird and i think that's what's fascinating about celebrities it's like i don't get it mm -hmm. um which is what makes me interested Definitely. yeah i was talking to alex about this a little bit before you hopped on and um what I love about the book so much is that it feels like it feels like a subversion of like a like a beach read like like then like if this was a beach read if this was like a you know one of those kinds of frothy books like she would end up with Hugo or she would end up with some great job right but it's like this is this is more like a, an exploration of like <laughs> almost of like late stage capitalism right like that that she's just you know like like you're saying, these are th there are things out there that are beyond her uh, ability to hurdle them, right? Like she's not going to, she's unable to get these certain things. And the thing that she is able to do is to like toil <laughs> and stick around and see what happens. And I just really loved that about this book, that it wasn't going to be that like arc that you would expect in like a frothy Netflix movie or something. Um can you talk about like the choices you made there, like what you were, you know, like intending for us to, to get from that? Yeah. Well, I think um, also the expectation of the beach read is, uh, has something to do with how the book is packaged and marketed. Yes, totally. They, <laughs> they wanted, uh, they wanted those beach read dollars, but uh, the, then people who thought it was a beach read were disappointed when it was like, oh no, this is about class struggle. <laughs> yeah, but it is so, it's also so funny and so, um, and now I'm defending it. And like, it's so funny and it's, and it feels so effortless. And I know for a fact that that's really very hard to pull off. Oh and yeah. um, to me, it's like, you know, what, I guess you want the happy ending or like the bow around it or whatever, but it just seems brave to me on your part. Thank you. Well, I always, um, I just wanted it to be realistic. Yeah. Um, and in my experience of the world, uh, nothing good happens. <laughs> like you don't like, uh, it's like, you're not going to like get a job out of like, it, nothing magical is going to happen. You're just going to end up slogging through um, and your life may incrementally improve after like tremendous effort on your part and a tremendous amount of years pass, but nothing is going to like, you know, there's no, there's not going to be a deus ex machina, like some man isn't going to give you a job. <laughs> and I think you're um, going to get five of the 30 things. That's right, it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, or less. Right. Um, some people don't get the five. Some people right. get two. Um, 
so yeah, so I just wanted to, you know, accurately represent that. And, and I think that, yeah, that's not, that's not the arc that uh, people are set up to expect mm-hmm. um, based on how this book looks. Like the hardcover has that swan on it, which I, I love the swan. Um, it's just, it's just packaged a little bit fluffier than it is. It's just, all of this is just to say that it's literary fiction. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, you know, and, um, but yeah, life is not, n- nothing like good is going to happen to you. No one's going to discover you. Um, nothing magical. You're not going to be bailed out by like some guy. He's not going to marry you. So it was important to me to, uh, you know, well, express that. The other thing I really like about June, the main, the main character is that like there are certain moments where like she could like take a step or two to make one of those things happen, but she chooses not to. Um, like she, she, you know, like she doesn't try to seduce Hugo. Like she doesn't, she does, like he mentions offhandedly, like maybe we'll go on tour together. And she does bring it up one time, but she's not like, like an opportunist. Doesn't pay for the dress or, or she yeah. does pay for the dress. I mean, right. She won't let him pay for the dress. Like right. there, like she, she also knows those things. Right. And she's, and she's like, not the type of character to sort of like swoon into his arms and hope for the best. Right. Like, she's just like, always sort of asking herself, like, what am I doing here? You know? Um, Her ambivalence is really important to me. Like what I didn't want to do was write an empowerment narrative, like, you know, where she like gives him a big fuck you at the end or something. (laughs) That also didn't feel, um, that didn't feel realistic. And that's another criticism a lot of readers have is like, why doesn't this woman leave? Why doesn't she tell him off? and the reason is because I think like in those moments, especially like with, with men and there's like a complicated power dynamic mm-hmm. and there's like career things at stake, there's like a lot of, it's like really foggy and it's like unclear what's even going on in the moment. And you don't, you don't know how to behave or you don't like know what quite what the right decision is. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people don't, wouldn't have the presence of mind, uh, you know, or have it together enough to like tell the dude off. Uh, so yeah, I was just trying to be realistic. Yeah. And I also really love like the absolute, like female thing of constantly checking in and wondering if, if you're attracted to someone like now, am I attracted to this person? Like, okay, well, how about now? And I feel like that's such a, like a, that's like a thing that women do right like (laughs) there's always an opportunity for us to be attracted like give us a reason um and then she's doing that with herself right like I'm not repulsed by him or you know like he does look handsome right now or and then (laughs) um I just love that as well she kind of does that with every character too like because there's a little bit of that with Spencer too that's true and Julian yeah um, but I think that maybe that's, maybe Alex can weigh in here. Like, is this, is this everyone on the planet who's just like, do I find this person attractive? What about well, now? What about now? I don't know that it's, it's I was, necessarily. I, I was thinking the male version was like, am I being cr- like, am I coming off in a strange way where she thinks that I'm attracted? I was thinking like, it's like, am I coming off insane right now? Am I saying too much? Am I being too friendly? Like. Oh, I, I, that's that's more the way I 
think of it. <laughs> I don't know. Like just not wanting to project any kind of like uh, stepping over a line or anything. Like weirdness. Yeah. Yeah. Which I guess is the same thing inverted. I'm just thinking about that. <laughs> like running through all the interactions with men I've had in my life. I mean, this could be an Alex thing. Don't, please don't ascribe my problems to the whole. No, Alex said that all men are <laughs> Could all my ex-boyfriends reach out and just tell me if you felt like you were being too weird? We got him here on the line. We can just bring on Trevor here. Uh, I said all my ex-boyfriends. I had like one ex-boyfriend. <laughs> Trevor I said Trevor <laughs> well do you feel like there's anything um like I know when I was writing my second novel I was like okay I'm gonna do things this way now as like a reaction to how I felt writing the first one and how it felt for it to come out or do you feel like you've you've kind of gotten over those chips on my shoulder <laughs> I mean I don't know what I'm doing at any moment <laughs> like with the writing <laughs> after the first book came out and I, I was like still kind of in free fall from debuting for a long time yeah mm -hmm. because then there's like after your first book comes out I think there's like a lot of questions like who who am I as a writer like what will the rest of my career look like what, what is a novel what mm -hmm. is a novel <laughs> um like you know like the second one is like you're sort of building a body of work now and it's like what well, what is that going to look like? Um, or maybe I'm the only one who was like plagued like this, but I felt like scared and uncertain for a long time. And I didn't really know how to move forward. Um, and I had like a false start where I wrote a lot on a project that like didn't come together. And then um, I just started, I was like, okay, well, fuck all that. I'm just going to like write what I feel like writing right now with yes. me, Love which that. was um, these really small stories about people living in the Hudson Valley. And they're just like, like they're not premise-y. Um, they're just about like people's lives. Um, and it made me really happy and I, I liked the work and I started publishing some of those. Um, and the, the Joyland story is one of those. And then that story, um, I thought just like there was like more potential for more there. Um, and so I started expanding it uh, into the novel and it's like, seems to be working. Like it's going to work, I think. Um, so, yeah. So I don't know. I don't really know what I'm doing, except that I need to be writing what I like and not try mm -hmm. to like get in my head too much about like the, the big questions like mm -hmm. you know should I be writing a family novel next like what would be mm -hmm. what fits with this what would fit with this book like what's going to make a career it's like all of those questions sort of send me to a dark place yes <laughs> so totally. I have to just like focus on on letting letting the work make me happy Aaron can you talk about the moment that you knew to abandon the other project when you kind of reached a point where you're like okay fuck that I'm on to the next thing um yeah like like something that um doesn't really I wrote like 30,000 words which is a lot oh wow okay and it was um but it was like kind of getting nowhere like that should be almost half a novel mm -hmm. um like 
you know, it's almost, I, I think of a novel, like novel length as like 70 to 75,000 words. Mm-hmm. But so that's like almost half a novel. So it should have been getting somewhere and it was just like not. Um, and it was this thing written in a few different voices and it was a family novel. And, uh, but I just like, didn't know where it was going. And it was like growing and growing without getting anywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I took a break from it um, and came back to it. And I was just like, oh, it's just like, it just doesn't have legs. Sometimes it's like, not even that something is a bad idea. It's just like, this doesn't have have legs it's not going to come together like it can't right. hold together as a project mm-hmm. um that's my experience in short story writing too where you like like a premise has to be really specific and characters have to be really specific um for the whole thing to cohere and sometimes they just like for whatever reason and i don't even know what it is they just like don't have the magic and they're not, right. not going to come together um so I ditched that and like that really hurts. Have either of you guys ever like abandoned a project? Yep. I I actually not with a long project, but I have rewritten it. I have rewritten something to the point where it's basically the same mistake, I guess. I have <laughs> I have misunderstood what I have doing what I was doing so greatly that I had to basically start over. And so I I, I know that feeling, but I, yeah, I don't know. I in some ways I don't know if I'm I think I'm so stubborn that I don't know if I'd be able to do 30,000 words and totally, totally punt on it. I, that, I mean, it's such that I am amazed by that when people are able to actually recognize something like that, honestly. Yeah, ste- step into your power, Alex. No, thanks. <laughs> I, yeah, I definitely, um, like when I found out I was pregnant with my third, I panic wrote a novel. I think I've mentioned this before on the pod and I wrote a whole novel, um, and uh, and now I I just feel very um, like distant from it, but it felt like it, it felt like something I needed to do in order to feel connected in a time when I felt very like like insane, <laughs> like maybe you were still feeling insane after your book came out, and that's you know where you were when you were writing that, but but it was like I need like I physically need to write something, um, even though like it ended up not being not being anything I actually cared about but um but it it actually you know, the, I said step into your power because it does it kind of feels good sometimes to be like this I I know this isn't like this is not the direction I want to go in and it's not what I believe in and um it feels good to kind of walk away from that and and you know move on to something else it does feel good it feels the same way it feels to like cut a whole scene that's not working yeah. or like a whole chunk of paragraphs where you're like I, I like you you're rewriting and rewriting and you can't make it work and you're like fuck it it's going mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, I know I can tell sometimes as I'm writing like this is creating so many problems for me <laughs> like why am I writing this <laughs> that's the best feeling though on in revision knowing or, or on coming to the understanding where it's like oh yeah I don't need any of this connective tissue this didn't just totally drop away it's, yeah. that is an amazing feeling isn't it great? It's yeah. like a high. It is. Yes. You're a god. Yeah. <laughs> like a feeling of control over the work. Yes. Or yeah. like a knowledge of your voice or a knowledge of like what you want. Totally. Like I'm a grown ass woman, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, Aaron, if people want to find you, where should they go? 
Um, you can find me on Twitter um, at Summers Erin, S-O-M-E-R-S-E-R-I-N, um, or follow me on Instagram. It's the Erin Summers. Um, I'm I'm private because I have children, but I will allow you to follow me. Just don't be weird, okay? Don't be. Yeah, don't be weird. Alex. Don't be weird. I'm sorry. <laughs> Trying to figure um, out if he's being weird. And if, if you don't follow Erin on Twitter, what are you doing? I mean, come on. You're, oh yeah, should, that's the real work. My tweets are the. Real that's work. the real work. Yes. <laughs> it is like a true pleasure to read your tweets. So God, yes. Keep up Thank the good work so on that much. one. They make me laugh too. <laughs> <laughs> like my husband will, I'll like be sitting there on my phone, and my husband will be like, "What are you laughing at?" And I'm always ashamed because the answer is like something I'm about to tweet. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I ask my husband, is this a good tweet? And then I read it to him. He's like, do not tweet that. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, thank you, honey. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> oh, thank you, Aaron. Thank you so much for being on. Thank yes. you guys for having me. It was so much fun. Absolutely. Thank you. Everybody go find that Joyland story and read it. Yes. Bye, Aaron. Bye. Bye. Thanks a lot, guys. You bet. That was so fun. Yeah, she's awesome. I feel like we could have talked for longer. Really enjoyed uh, Stay Up With Hugo Best. Me too. Me too. And um, the audiobook is excellent too for yeah. people who um, are looking for an audiobook. And the the reader doesn't sound that different from Aaron to me. I was going to say the same thing. And, and that's, that's great. Yes. Yeah, I really liked the reader because it it it's like the voice of the book. It felt like yes, um, yeah, and and like we were talking about this last week. Who were we talking about this with? You need a book that goes down easy. Mm-hmm. You need a win. I don't remember who we were talking about that God, with. It's all gone now. Yeah. Um. Oh, Chelsea, maybe. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it was. We were talking yep. about with Chelsea Martin. By the way, I'm reading Caca Dolce right now, which is also so good. Have you read um, the Spoon one yet? Yeah, I just. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Um, and I like I did similar things when I was in high school and I I wish I had known that so that we could talk about it. Like oh my god. Yeah. Um anyway, uh Stay Up with Hugo Best like is one of those books that we were talking about with Chelsea that like go down easy and feel um like fun to read and feel like a win, but also are very insightful and literary. Mm-hmm. Um so but if you're looking for like a, you know, a romantic ending, you're not going to find it there. Nope. Sorry. You're not going to find like a doom, doomy ending either, but you know, there will be an ending though. There is an ending. Yes. And I love the final, as I said earlier, I love the the final sentences. Anyway, how was your week? Uh, decent week, decent these, pandemic these. week, right? DPW. <laughs> um, what about you? It was okay. Uh, <laughs> you see how I, I just like ha- you like you passed me the puck and I just immediately was just like, <laughs> nope, right back to you on the side here. You can fire the shot. <laughs> you know, I immediately I'm trying to remember what happened last week. Nothing happened. It's I mean, okay we not can't, to know. It's okay not to know. Where Alex and I are, we can't go outside because it's like been like two degrees and snowy. Yeah. 
So it's basically just been like, how do I entertain my children in oh my boy. own home day after mm -hmm. day after day after day? Yeah. We only watched one movie today, which is like an enormous win. That's nice. For screen Good for time. You. What movie oh was God. it? Aladdin. Oh, yeah. Kind of holds up. Yeah, I totally. It. I yeah. It. I hadn't seen it in forever, but I remembered every goddamn scene. <laughs> that was the first CD I bought. <laughs> Whole new world. That and the car's greatest hits. Oh, sure. It had yeah. like the back of a fender of some car on the back, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. There was a car on it. The cars. Probably a car. Yeah, the cars. That's a safe bet. Yeah. Uh, no, that we have tons of screen time in my house. I mean, it's it's scheduled and they know they have to like read and play and go outside if possible in between. Mm -hmm. But no, we have we have screen time because I mean, because mom and dad need to have a, a, a time to think our thoughts. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I mean, there will be no judgment from the side of the <laughs> world. I don't know. Where are we? <laughs> yeah. So. That's it. I mean, just like, um, I got some writing done. I like my, my writing goal, my daily goal is 500 words, but I've been actually busting through that. Wow. Yeah. So doing that, um, thinking I might start working on some shorter stuff. Are you still generating new pages on the novel you've been working on or is it, are you kind of going back through revision? Yeah. I, I am still generating pages because uh, I keep thinking like I'll read through and I'll think, oh, OK, I need to like touch on this or like go here. Um, it's very intuitive right now. Sure. Uh, you know, I'm just like placing the quilt squares. <laughs> um, but I and I think the other problem is like the time that I have to write is so finite that like editing feels like a much like I need to spread out more. You know, I need more time to work on editing. I can't just like jump in get my words done and then jump out. I need like time, time, time. So that's why I, have, I haven't really gone back through and started revising yet. Um, right. So hopefully one day that will, that will happen for me. I hope so. I have that uh, hope for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and what are you reading? I, so I finished uh, Justin Taylor's memoir, uh, oh, Writing yes. with a Ghost, which was really, really good. Uh, I listened to that one and Justin reads it, which was great. Um, it actually, you know, it ends up being a lot about how he became a writer, the path he took, and a lot about just kind of the itinerant adjunct life that he had while during the final years of his dad's life and mm. it's all um yeah it's all there it's it's a really uh really moving book i uh i would definitely recommend it um and and if you're an audiobook person because he reads it i think that's definitely an added bonus for sure i mean obviously i love books about fathers so mm -hmm. yeah i think you would really enjoy this one i mean there's a lot of florida too a ton oh, of florida in this yes, book yes please yeah for sure. And uh, let's see. I I don't know what I'm going to read next. I have way too many books to get to. So yeah, I'm excited to start some. That's the big decision in my life. What am I going to read next? Because everything else is the same. <laughs> uh, 
Yep. 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 Are you, when you say what you're going to read next, are you, do you just mainly listen to books now? Cause you do it at work, right? And so I'm on your drive. I, I am, I am re I read, I have something I'm reading and mm-hmm. then I have something I'm listening to two different things and I'll read before I go to bed. Mm-hmm. But honestly, I, I mean, if I get six pages, that's, that's usually what I get like six, mm-hmm. six or seven pages and I'm done. I'm tired mm-hmm. and I go to bed. It's I, I, I was beating myself up for so long about, you know, just with watch. I, I watch the girls mainly um, because of the way my work schedule is and my wife's work schedule. She's with them on the weekends and I'm with them the majority of the rest of the days when I'm not at work. And it's hard for me to just sit with a book at the end of the day. I just yeah. feel like I need to, you know, watch some bullshit or but I, it's hard for me to just lock in and, and read a book. Um, but yeah, listening to books on my commute and then on my, you know, my hour break at work and has been like a real uh, lifesaver. I, I was resistant to it for a while. And then actually a friend of ours and a, a future guest, Catherine Nichols was, she had mentioned that she usually she primarily listens to books and I was like so blown away by that because her retention of stuff just, you know, I just was like, Oh wow. Like you can actually be that intelligent about books and listen to them. I mean, this is a stupid thought I had, but it was like really, <laughs> it was really inspiring to me. And I was like, well, yeah, I can listen to books. That's, that's reading. That's the same thing. And, uh, but it actually, I was, it took someone saying that to me for, for me to be able to realize that. So that I know, really I don't know where that my like, approach is. Yeah. I don't that know. That thought came from, from me thought. too. It yeah. is stupid. Cause I was like, it like, I, I even asked it on Twitter today. Like, is it okay to put this on my Goodreads? And it's like, yeah, of course it is. Right. Yeah. And I, yeah, I don't know where that comes from. I think, um, I think in, maybe we're just beating ourselves up and in, in that it feels, it feels more passive, but if you're lit, I mean, if you're an engaged listener, I feel like, you know, there's not, it's, 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 it's the same. It's reading, of course. Yes. Of course, of course it is. And it's, as someone pointed out on Twitter, um, it makes it possible to like get more reading done because yeah. I, I've been listening to podcasts while I cook or like wash the dishes or like shovel snow 85,000 times. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I can listen to books and it's great. Yeah. Libby, Libby, if you don't have it, guys. This is an ad for Libby that we will not be paid for. Yep. Uh, did you have anything you... Oh, sorry. Go for it. I was just going to say you're going to read some stuff. Yeah. I was just going to read a poem real quick. Um, and then maybe we'll see. Maybe I'll read one other thing depending on how we feel here. No, I feel good. Please. What's the other thing? I was just going to read the start of a book I got in the mail. Um, a book called Scratch by Steve Himmer. and I read the opening when it came in the mail and I just thought that's how you start a book (laughs) I was like that is that's great um so yeah I was going to read this Ed Skoog poem that I'm always thinking of because I think it's probably my favorite poem and I was like you know what it might be fun to read that um so this is the title poem from Ed's book, Run the Red Lights, like it was, it's not his most recent book. Most recent one is called Travelers Leaving for the City. Run the Red Lights maybe came out four or five years ago. And yeah, so this is Run the Red Lights by Ed Skoog. 
When my mother sent me for cigarettes, I'd buy a candy bar too, sign her name to the book, and walk out with the green and white carton, Virginia Slim's 100s, under my arm, the chocolate already gone. Sugar, my God, like newspaper cartoon panels spread out on the kitchen table where I'd pretend to smoke, imitating her. After the corner store closed, we made our groceries at Dylan's, joined the impersonal. A villain snatched her purse there when I was away at college, and on the phone, she told me excitedly how Topeka police chased the culprit, and she named each street, each intersection and landmark, the whole adventure, just for her. I'm grateful now to the sedentary house, though I've grown as large on candy as John Candy. My older brothers left home, and our meals stayed the same. A skillet high with beef stroganoff, pot roast and broth, chili con carne, cheese sandwiches with mayo, flocks of fried chicken. Then the whole house went on a diet of cold tofu cubes, a broken disc of lemon in a water glass, cottage cheese measured onto lettuce, and then back to London broil the next night, no questions asked. Lovely. <laughs> we were emotions without form, and I carry it with me. Not just in frame, arm, and jowl, and belly, but here in the intergalactic space of written thought, the infinite stage where we come talk to each other. Sugar makes me curious. After Katrina, I took the diet where you eat meat and lost almost 100 pounds from a surfeit of bacon, sautéed pork medallions, beef, and lamb. The weight fell away like a knight's armor after a joust. I bought shirts at a regular store. I played softball and ran bases, bounded them as if on a new, more forgiving planet. And I went crazy, evened out, broke down again, inconsolable at the finale of Six Feet Under, tears for my mother, postponed, and more torrented for delay. Opening the book of grief requires you read all the way to the end every time. Driving to work, I stopped bewildered at a gas station paid cash for two Snickers, providing more salvation than I've ever known from religion's acres. I write about the West and the South and home, their tenderness and trouble, and the weird spirits breaking the best days. Still, I find myself down by the river at twilight. On the bridge, deliberate seeming people walk by like victorious aliens, past the consequential palaces lit as before, the faces turning in their rotisseries. In profile, my mother looked like Alex Chilton, lead singer of the Box Tops and then Big Star. I used to see Chilton around New Orleans in line at the grocery store, walking down Esplanade. My mother also had a solo career, playing solitaire and watching her own TV in the kitchen and dying before everyone else. Dying, Chilton urged his wife to run the red lights, his last words. And when I had to leave my mother in the hospital, that was hard. And then again at the funeral, I set a marble under her folded hands. Don't know why. It's been 10 years, 10 fingers, the closed eye of each knuckle, each nail, it's years, fullest day moon, which shed the other. My scar from opening a window, such force to move the wood frame, so little to shatter glass it held, to be held so again. 10 years, so 40 seasons, eight endings and beginnings, well, always a gust in them, which is the sigh of how she would note leaf and bird. One hand to hold the coffee cup, one the cigarette, the red ember she became at midnight. Red light, I. Damn. Isn't that, I just, That's I love it so much. 
so sad. It's just I, that I feel like it has everything there that I want out of writing. It does. It has that like specific description of the food you ate in in when you were a child. You know, like yeah, not you, him, but like a, sure, you know, like that's always so evocative. And just like big love and sadness for the world. Just, mm -hmm. just I love it. Okay. Um, so this is uh, the opening couple of paragraphs of Steve Himmer's novel Scratch, which came out a couple years ago. Um, there's a little prologue, but I'm just going to read the, the first couple of paragraphs here. Uh, information you would already have if you picked this up is we got a forest on the cover and uh, some ominous looking horns, but that's it. The door of the trailer swings open with a clatter against the exterior wall and its echo stirs starlings into the air. Martin Blasket, the man responsible for this clearing in the forest and for the houses to be built upon it, descends a folding staircase to muddy ground and leaves the door open. He steps into his story as easily, as suddenly, as those blue-black speckled birds invaded this forest from elsewhere, generations of theirs ago. I watched them arrive as I've watched others and now watched this man, this Martin, descend. Already he's in the habit of leaving doors open, years of sitting always rising to his locked windows, wiped away by a few quiet nights. But if he knew all that winds through these woods, if he only knew how nearby we are, watching, he'd close it and lock it or he might go back inside and stay home, as close to home as he comes. His arms swing like wind-blown branches, and his body stands straight as a trunk, but uprooted and always in motion, a constant impression of stillness and movement at once, of being both where he is and somewhere else all the time. Martin moves like a man who knows where he's going and knows he'll arrive, a man who has no idea and would never believe that in a few hours' time he'll be pinned to the ground with the claws of a bear in his chest. This morning he arose with an urge to go walking. He dreamt all night of a life not his own. Two cars, two children, two well-worn dents and a couch and emerged with a real sense of loss. I've heard and talk around campfires and through open windows that dreams have no place in the world and no place in your tales and they're cheap and confused and a residue stuck to the ends of your day. But dreams bounce through this forest, no more abstract than your radio waves. They crackle and hum almost as loudly as your black power lines and the great metal mass that carry your voices from one part of the world to another. Wow. Right? Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's called Scratch? Scratch. Okay. Steve Himmer. This, this, this is going to be kind of like be my favorite part of our pod from now on is just you reading to me. <laughs> <laughs> I love reading other people's stuff. <laughs> Oh, those, those were both beautiful. Yeah. I'm glad you shared those. Yeah, me too. Talk to you next time. Hi, bud. Hi. I'm a Writer Butt is recorded by Alex Higley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Because there's a pandemic out there, please wear a mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. 